0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Back on November the 12th of last year, uh, we made a new friend. One who would uh, both bless us and one who would wound us along the way, but both in a good way. We met a friend who would challenge us, who would challenge us particularly to truly examine ourselves and to assess on an individual, personal basis whether or not our faith is genuine. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I don't know what your experience has been like in these eight months as we have sort of um, walked our way through this letter written by the Lord's uh, brother James But I found him to be a faithful friend who wounds when necessary But blesses in the end. He is not the the one who kisses as an enemy but the one who speaks the truth and the one who challenges us in hard places And forces us to ask hard questions about ourselves that we'd rather not ask who forces us to look into things that we would rather not look into Who doesn't allow us to settle for simple pat? Surface answers but forces us to substantiate our claims with actions And so it's been a challenge This morning we find ourselves in the last two verses of this letter So I'll read them to you as we bring this to a conclusion. James chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful for our journey together. We are grateful for our opportunity to get to know James. And to hear what it is that he has had to say to us. Because we know, Lord, that it's not just what he's had to say to us, but it's what you've had to say to us. So you've preserved the words that James wrote in your Book of truth the bible And you have inscribed it in inerrant infallible Sufficient truth for us to consider even in our day many years removed from the days of james And we thank you for our journey thus far for uh, the challenge it has been for the Uh, the the sweet fruit of the Spirit that it has brought out in our lives, for the way it has helped us to examine ourselves and to identify areas where we fall short of your glory, and for the way it has called us to repentance and to renewed faith. And so, as we bring this to a conclusion this morning and say goodbye for now to James and his letter, We pray that you would help us to do so well As we consider this last issue that james brings before us May your word go out this morning lord and pierce our hearts Convict us challenge us encourage us draw us For your sake and for your glory we pray amen Well back on uh november the 12th of last year, we did what amounted to an introductory sermon on this letter to James And we noted several things there in the introduction to that this book But the thing that is important for us to remember as we bring it to a conclusion is when we first set out on this journey We identified that James has written this letter for a reason and for a purpose James has asked in the midst of this letter one central question and he has provided one central answer We identified this back in November. We've referred to it all the way through the book. And now as we come to a conclusion, it's important for us to look once again at this and reflect on the whole thing in light of the central question and central answer. The central question is in chapter 2, verse 14. James simply asks, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? It's a question that's important. What about the case of the person who says they have faith, but whose life shows no evidence of the change that comes from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? What about that person? Can the kind of faith that she claims save her? Is that kind of faith a faith that is only a profession, but is not? Something that affects the behavior. Is that a sufficient kind of a faith to redeem the soul? And James' answer throughout this book has been a resounding, no, it is not. He says it very clearly in verse 26 of of chapter 2 where he says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also a faith apart from works is a dead faith. James' central tenet has been this. He looks out over the landscape of the church and he identifies a problem. And the problem is there are an awful lot of people who identify with the church of Jesus Christ and identify themselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and by the profession of their mouths say that they belong to him. But when you watch their lives over the immediate and the long haul in particular, you see no evidence of saving faith in the way that they live. There is no fruit of the Spirit that's coming to bear in their lives. There is no increasing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. There is no transformation of life where sin that previously dominated them is is, is systematically and, and consistently chipped away. And holiness is coming to bear in the way that they live. James says, what about that guy? Is that kind of a faith that's only a profession? The kind of faith that saves? And James says, no. That kind of faith is a dead faith. It's the kind of faith, he said, that demons possess. Oh, they know who Jesus is. They understand the facts. But he's certainly not their Lord. James says, no. The kind of faith that saves is a kind of faith that always and forever shows up in the way we live. It fleshes out into real life. It affects not just the profession of the mouth, but every part of the person. The way they think, the way they act, the way they talk, the way they navigate in the world around them. Everything changes when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's an old person that dies, and there's a new person that comes to life. And the habits and the behaviors of the old person dies with that old person and a new life comes to bear. A new way of living, a new way of thinking, a new way of navigating in the world. And so James wrote this letter uh, at the outset as a corrective for the church. With the realization that there are many people associated with the church who don't belong to Christ, who are lost. People who fall under the category that Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 and following, when Jesus said very directly these words, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, speaking of the end, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And many mighty works in your name. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Part from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, it's not everyone who says Jesus is Lord. It's those for whom Jesus truly is Lord. And we know the difference by the way they live. That's what James's whole thesis is. Those whose faith is all talk and no action. That who he's, that's who he's speaking to. That's who he's writing to. Those who say they believe but live like they don't. Those who are the tares among the weeds. To use jesus description those who deceive themselves and often other people about the status of their faith Those who live under this illusion or we may say deception That all one must do to be a believer Is to make a confession with the mouth That genuine faith is merely an intellectual thing That's the people to whom james writes And he writes for a purpose To come alongside that person and to say to them, brother, sister, if your faith doesn't change your behavior, you're only fooling yourself. If it doesn't change how you navigate trials and temptation if it doesn't change how you treat other people if it doesn't change how you use your tongue if it doesn't change how you approach wealth and material possessions if it doesn't change whether your your speech is marked by truth or lies. If it doesn't change how you interact with the world system around you If it doesn't change what you do and what you resort to when you're sick and desperate and in need of help And how you connect with the body of christ then it's not the kind of faith That saves It is in fact a dead faith Which cannot save This whole letter we could say Is james attempt To pursue Those who have wandered from the faith. And so it's fitting that he closes the letter with a challenge to you and me to do the same thing. This whole letter is James' attempt to look out upon the church and to identify a segment of those who have wandered and to go after them with the truth and to call them back by faith and repentance. And so it makes sense that when he comes to the end of this book, even though the conclusion is abrupt, even though there's not much of a sort of traditional conclusion to a letter, there's no closing greetings, there's no closing salutation, there's none of that, it's just simply a final call to the body of Christ to practice what James, in fact, has pred- Practiced in the writing of the letter to pursue those who wander, to pursue those who are deceived, to pursue those who are fooling themselves, and to call them to repentance and to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly how James ends this letter. By simply Making one final call to his brothers my brothers if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death cover a multitude of sins It's only two verses And it's a very direct and clear call to the body of christ And so we'll look at it just really in two parts He identifies the very beginning here, sort of the dreadful danger of wandering. And it's worth taking some time to look at this morning, this dreadful danger of wandering. My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth, if any among you wanders away from the truth, who is it that James is concerned about here? Who is he worried about in the body of Christ when he identifies this last little call to action? Well, he's speaking of anyone who's among you. Who are the potential wanderers that James is concerned about here? He looks out over the body of Christ and he says, anyone among you. Anyone among you. That's who James is worried about. He recognized that there is a potential danger to every person who belongs to the body of Christ. And that potential is that we might wander from the truth. That we might wander away from the truth and shipwreck our faith. That's what he's worried about. He's not concerned here about those who are on the outside of the church. You get that, right? James' final remarks are not aimed at those outside the church. He's not concerned about those out there. He's concerned about those who are in here. It is a call to those who profess faith within the church. He looks out over the landscape of the church and he sees that there are folks who have once professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ And maybe even currently still profess faith in Christ, but he observes something about their lives They are not where they used to be. They have wandered away to some degree or the other They've gone astray They've traded in truth for error And now as he looks at them their faith is in question But the issue is, these are people who are within the body, and it's anyone that he is concerned about. Who's the potential wanderer in the church? All of us are. Is there anyone among us who has a faith that's so strong, that's so pure, that's so righteous, that's completely immune to error and lies and falsehood and deception? Are there any of us who have a faith that's so strong and so righteous that... We're not a potential wanderer Answer to that question is no And if we begin to fancy ourselves as such people the odds are we've already wandered James says it's anyone Is there anyone among you? And so the question James would have us asking as we come to the close of this letter is really twofold Am I wandering? And how do I help my brother who's wandering? Those are the two questions that he wants us to consider Am I wandering? Am I the wanderer? And when I look at myself today if i'm honest with myself in the mirror Am I where I used to be with the lord? Am I where I ought to be with the lord? Or has my trajectory changed and have I wandered off in some way? And secondarily Or maybe with equal passion james says What's my responsibility when I see my brother my sister wandering What do I do about that? Those are his closing concerns. James says, any among you wandering? This this word wanderer is an interesting word. It's a word that means to roam or to wander or to go astray. It's the word from which we get our English word planet. Because as you look to the skies and you see the planets, they they tend to roam and, and move in various ways it's the person who has once once been on the right path but has now deviated from the course and gone in some other direction it's it's a person who has willfully at some point moved off course and headed in the wrong direction they veered away from the truth first peter chapter 2 peter speaks to this in first peter chapter 2 verse 25 he says this for you were straying like sheep But you now return to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Peter was concerned about the same thing. People who like sheep just sort of stray off from the fold and go in a different direction. Endanger themselves, putting themselves at risk. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, Paul writes to Timothy and he identifies one of the causes often of wandering. He says this, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. By the way, James has talked about this as well. It is through this craving that some have what? They've wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. For the love of money, some have, have wandered. They've veered off course. They've strayed in the wrong direction. And they end up in a place where they're pierced. This kind of wandering that James speaks of, this kind of wandering that Paul speaks of, this kind of straying that Peter speaks of, can really fall into two categories. It could be a doctrinal wandering. It can be a practical wandering. Most often when there's someone who's wandering, it's both. Because almost inevitably what we think affects what we do. Almost inevitably any person whose life by 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 practical measure gets off course has been preceded at some point by their thinking getting off course Just kind of always follows that pattern We begin to believe lies and we begin to embrace errors in our thinking and that then filters down into the way we live Our minds veer off course and then our lives veer off course One of the things I remember most vividly from going to chaplain school back when I first was in the Navy uh, was this little uh, two-day course that we had in the midst of, uh, of this uh, sort of uh, uh, three-week stint of, of, uh, of field uh, work that we were doing out in the woods. Now, it was, it was this little two-day or three-day a section that we did on land navigation. Now, let me just say this you want to see something that's like YouTube worthy via entertainment and laughter Put a bunch of chaplains out around you, but that's not one of the things you want me to do I mean Here I am. I have no military background whatsoever. I could get lost in my neighborhood in my car with a gps And and I found myself in pretty good company there at chaplain school um, I mean People who are, uh, you know good at reading and thinking and writing but not exactly what you would call highly skilled wilderness personnel and And so the way this works is you sit in a little class and they give you some, you know The basics of how you do land navigation both in the daytime and at night how they were, you know, smart enough to teach us in daylight first um, I think only because they were afraid we might literally wander away and they'd never find us again, but um, you, you, you practice, you know, you have a map and you have a compass and you know You, you they tell you, you know Go to such-and-such such point on the map and there will be a marker there in the in the woods somewhere and you find that marker It'll have a number on it and You come back and report back and we'll tell you if you found the right thing or you didn't find the right thing And we do it in the daytime on a short course and then you do it in the daytime in a longer course and then you do it at nighttime on the long course and uh, You know uh, it, It's just funny it really was funny to watch a bunch of chaplains roaming around with a, with a compass and a map in the woods Looking for little sticks in the dark Not having a clue really what any of us were doing and the whole class was run by a marine gunnery sergeant If you have any any sort of um, you know engagement with the marines They're pretty well trained in these things. I mean they could do this stuff in their sleep and so I can only imagine the entertainment that that gunnery sergeant had in watching us, you know Uh, you know, he he sat in one location and just watched all these chaplains come back You know, this is the number we found. Nope, that's wrong. Go back again That was the whole thing, you know, it was all night, you know evolution. Nope wrong number go again and A bunch of frustrated chaplains But one of the things i'll never forget about that was I happened to be near him one time Uh when when a group came in and reported their numbers and they were all wrong and uh, one of the chaplains was just uh was at the point of just saying, you know what, I'm, I'm exasperated with this thing. To which the gunnery sergeant, and if you know gunnery sergeant, they almost all have this real raspy voice because they've been screaming at people for years and they've lost their voice and ruined it. He says to this chaplain, oh, don't worry about it, sir. In real life, if you're ever doing this, that means everybody else is dead. You won't have to worry about it long. At which point, I found that blunt truth to be quite sobering. And at the same time, humorous. It was his way of saying, we're trying to teach you some basics here, buddy. But if you ever have to do this, it's not going to be a problem for too long. Because that means the people who really know how to do this are all out of the picture. And you're not going to make it very long. Funny memory I have from that. But one of the memories that I had the most from, from trying to learn how to do that was that... Uh, You get a map and you have a compass and you're going to a point that's a long distance away And you're trying as a as a team to to stay on that course all the way to your point But I learned that the hard way um, That all it takes is one slight deviation from that course one little step off course And that sets you on a whole different trajectory And at first you have no you have no realization of it. you don't even notice it just one little step And you think you're on course But if your point is over here and you start back here and you take one little step away The further you go Down that trajectory the further off course you end up Until you get a mile down the road and you realize hey the number's not here It's way over there And you find yourself asking How did I get all the way over here when I was supposed to be over there? I mean I set out to go there. Why am I here? The answer to that question is actually quite simple and quite basic, because somewhere along the path, you wandered off course. At some point, you took a step off of the pathway in the wrong direction. And it was probably initially a very small step in the wrong direction, and that's all it took. Because that small step meant you took the next step, and that next step was even further off course. And unless something happens along the way to wake you up to the reality that you're going the wrong way That you're off course and something comes into your life to cause a course correction to get you back on track One day you wake up and you end up or one hour You wake up and you realize i'm nowhere near where i'm supposed to be That was a life lesson that came to me vividly when I was thinking of what james is writing When he talks about those who wander from the faith, it's that same exact kind of a thing We set out on a course to follow Christ, but it begins at some point in our life where we just take a step off of that road. It's some small compromise. It's some small, it's some small little bit off course. But the problem is the next step we take along that pathway, it just takes us even further away. And step by step by step, we end up one day a long way from where we ever dreamed we would be. I've navigated with as a pastor over the years with people who shipwreck their faith in a lot of different ways And one of the common themes that I hear in the moments where they're sobered and they wake up to the reality of what's happened in their life is The constant question How did I end up here? How, how I would have never dreamed that I would end up here And it's the realization that My life has been set on a course that I never dreamed I would go on I'm doing things that I I had never dreamed I would do. Things that I never set out initially to do. And the answer is always the same. No, you didn't set out to do this. You set out on a course to follow Christ, but at some point you wandered. You deviated from the course. And you didn't realize it. Or you realized it and you did nothing about it. And now one day you wake up. And you're a long way from where you ever Imagine you would be This wandering is usually sort of a gradual movement It doesn't normally happen all at once it begins with some small little deviation off course And it's something for which every one of us is individually responsible We're all individually responsible for our wandering. Oh, it may be that there are there other people who are with us wandering at the same time It, It may be even that there are people who are leading us into temptation But at the end of the day, we're all individually responsible for our own wandering. Alistair Begg likes to say, every sin is an inside job. And he's right. James has told us this back in chapter 1, verse 14, where he says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. Desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. It's our own desires that, that draw us off course And our movement in that direction is ours It's not someone else's There's no one to blame And another thing that I think is worth noting Is our wandering is often best In fact not often, usually Maybe always Best observed by others around us It's hard to see when we're wandering It's hard to see but others around us see it way before we do, usually. And it's another reason why the body of Christ is so important. If there's one thing that I had not recognized about James's letter beforehand, uh, moving into this study, that I have now seen with, with much more vivid clarity as we get to the end, it is that James demands people be a part of the local body of Christ. Because if you're not, almost everything James talks about... Sets you in danger on the outside and almost every corrective for our lives comes from within not from without And so james is talking about wandering here and our wandering is best observed by others around us And it's one of the great responsibilities of the body of christ to come alongside each other and to Pay attention to how our brothers and sisters are walking and living and to love them enough to encourage them When we see them wandering off to love them enough to say, brother, I think you're wandering. It used to be that you did this, and I used to hear you talking about this, but now I see you do this, and I'm hearing you talk about this. Are you sure you haven't, you haven't veered off course somewhere? Can I help you? How can we together look at this and do a quick course correction? Because I think something's wrong. It's one of the most critical ways we serve one another in the body And it's another reason why it's so dangerous to your soul to be on the outside of the local church When you're an outsider who's not connected to a local body Who's not locked arms with a local body who hasn't come into that sort of covenant relationship Where we're navigating together and loving one another and to wander and the problem is they not that they just wander in general But he says they wander from the truth It's the truth from which they wander When James talks about the truth here, he's talking about sort of an all-encompassing term that sort of encompasses the whole of the gospel. When James says that if anyone among you uh, wanders from the truth, he's talking about wanders from the the sort of the, the broad truth of the Christian faith. From fidelity to the gospel, we could say. He's not talking about a particular truth. He's not talking about some particular doctrine or some peripheral doctrine. But he's talking about the central core of what it means to walk with and to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He's worried about those who walk All right, we'll press on. The Scriptures speak to us about the truth in these terms in many ways. In John chapter 8, verse 31, um, we find this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him... If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In John chapter 18, Pilate said to him, Jesus, so you're a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice Throughout scripture we're called to obey the truth speak the truth love the truth We're told that when we become believers in the lord jesus christ We're indwelt by the holy spirit and he is specifically called to follow and to live And you have to remember for james truth is not just a mental thing right for james truth Real truth is something that's believed and it's something that's acted on and you can never separate the truth, the two. So when James says people have wandered from the truth, he's talking about both pieces of this. They've wandered from the truth in their minds and what they believe, but they've also wandered from the truth and the way they're behaving and what they're doing and how they're living. James's whole argument is if it's not lived, it's not believed. If you're not living it, then you don't really believe it. There's an awful lot of debate theologically just as an aside here about who james is talking about Who is it that he's talking about who are these people from within the church who wander from the truth? Are these some would say believers who have now strayed from the truth and lost their salvation? Well, it can't be so james nowhere else indicates such a thing as a possibility And it certainly contradicts the clear teaching of scripture all throughout regarding the security of the believer That's not the issue are they believers who backslide for a season? Are they unbelievers who are associated with the church but don't know Christ? Are they those like in John, excuse me, First John chapter two, where John writes, they, "They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might be complained that they're not of us. Is that what he's talking about? Well, there's much debate and argument about these things. It seems to me that James is probably talking about number two and number three. Believers who have backslidden and also unbelievers who are associated with the church, but then wander away. You say, Greg, why do you think it's two? Are you just wishy-washy? You don't want to make a decision? You lazy bum? No, that's not what I am. I mean, I may be, but that's not what I am here. The reason I say it's both is because when someone is wandering, we haven't a clue what category they fit in. When someone who was once associated with the church wanders off from the truth I haven't the foggiest idea of the status of their soul I don't know if they're a believer who's backsliding or if they're an unbeliever who just associated with the church for a while In fact, there's no way for me to possibly know that Only god knows that But at the end of the day It's none of my business and it doesn't matter Because in both cases james says my responsibility is to pursue them And to call them to repentance and faith So we don't have to argue about it. It doesn't matter If they're believers who have backslidden then when we pursue them They will believe the gospel and they will come back and repent and entrust their lives to christ once again Afresh and anew and get back on the right course if they're unbelievers who were associated with the church They'll continue on their course right to the end of destruction So it doesn't matter to sort out which one they are My suspicion is James has primarily in mind those Who are unbelievers who are associated with the church because that seems to be his burden all along That there are people who associate with Christ in the church, but they don't ever live it And they aren't the genuine thing A couple weeks ago when I was studying for another sermon, I ran across a website that caught my attention It was really a blog site I don't normally read blogs, but this particular blog caught my attention. I was looking for something altogether different. But I ran across this blog site uh, where this guy has a multitude of entries into his blog. And one of them caught my attention because it was titled, I Hate Jesus. And so I read it, and here's what he said. This was his rationalization for hating Jesus. He said, I don't hate the flesh and blood Jesus who walked the dusty roads of Palestine, nor do I hate the Jesus found on the page of the Bible. Uh, as though those are two different Jesuses, by the way. These Jesuses are relics of the past. I'll leave it to historians to argue and debate whether these Jesuses were real or fiction. Over the centuries, Christians have created many Jesuses in their own image. This is the essence of Christianity, an ever evolving religion bearing little resemblance to what it was a century ago the jesus i hate is the modern western jesus the jesus who's been part of my life for almost 58 years the jesus of bygone eras have eras have no power to harm me but the modern jesus the jesus of the 300,000 christian churches that populate every community in america today he has the power to affect my life to hurt my family and to destroy my country and i with a vengeance hate him in another log um Entry to his blog. It was just simply entitled 16 reasons why I'm not a Christian and he lists them I no longer think the Bible is of the Bible is a God inspired text. I no longer think the Bible is inerrant text I no longer think Jesus is God. I no longer think Jesus was virgin-born I no longer think Jesus turned water into wine walked on water healed the sick or raised the dead I no longer think Jesus resurrected from the dead. I no longer think there's a heaven or a hell I think the Bible shows a progression of belief from polytheism to monotheism I think the Bible teaches multiple plans of salvation I think that much of the history found in the Bible is fiction I think that the Bible God is an abhorrent vile deity one. I would not worship even if I believe it existed I think science best explains the natural world I no longer think humans are sinners I see no evidence for the existence of the Christian God and thus I am an atheist What makes those blog entries particular at least to captivate, sort of captivate my attention and get me to read Was the biography of the man the brief biography of the man who wrote them His name is Bruce Whose name I can't pronounce he's 61 years old and here's what his biography says Bruce G. We'll call him Lives in rural northwest Ohio with his wife of 40 years. He and his wife have six grown children and 12 grandchildren. Bruce pastored evangelical churches for 25 years in Ohio, Texas, and Michigan. Bruce left the ministry in 2005. And in 2008, he left Christianity. Bruce is now a humanist and an atheist. That caught my attention. Because here we have a man who, for 25 years, practiced what I'm practicing this morning and what I've practiced for the last 23 years, who walked away from it completely, who now says, I hate Jesus. I reject the God of the Bible as a vile, abhorrent deity who I would never worship even if I believed he was real. What's interesting is you'll find on his blog also a letter that he wrote back in 2012. It's called Dear Family, Friends, and Former Parishioners. It's his personal letter to people in those groups who he knows are concerned about his life. It's a lengthy letter and we don't have time to go through it all today. But what was fascinating to me were some of the highlights in his letter. Because some of the highlights of his letter... Show me the course deviation of his life. Bruce didn't wake up one day an atheist who hates God. Well, there was a day when he was a pastor who was fulfilling a calling to preach the gospel. But he stepped off course. He wandered. He veered off from the truth in some small and simple ways. And his trajectory has taken him somewhere. I bet if you'd asked him ten years ago... He never would have dreamed that he would be Listen to a few excerpts that were particularly important as I read through this He says I can no longer wholeheartedly embrace the doctrines of the evangelical fundamental faith. particularly I do not believe in the inerrancy of scripture Nor do I accept as fact the common evangelical belief of the inspiration of scripture So we see where bruce veered off course early on Early on, he looked at this word and he said, you know what, this word that I preach, I don't, I no longer believe it has inerrancy. I no longer believe it's the truth. I, I, have come to believe that this book now that I thought was the truth is actually in reality filled with errors. I can't count on it to be true. It's now, it's not got problems. It's not got er, It's got errors in it. And it's a, a real, it's a real short trip from saying, I I believe now that the Bible has errors to saying you know what I don't even believe that it's inspired by God at all You see the, the road always takes you there When you throw out one you end up throwing out the other And so when you throw out the inerrancy of scripture and now you say not only does the Bible contain errors But the Bible didn't even come from God to begin with it's just a human book Now you have sort of you have sort of lifted your anchor of your ship and you will now drift wherever the wind blows you Because you have no truth to hold on to and you have no measure for what's real and what's not what's true and what's false And so once you hoist up the anchor on both of those central truths It's no surprise that the the wandering picks up speed, right? He says coming to this conclusion Has forced me to reevaluate many of the doctrines I held as true over these many years yeah once you uncork the scriptures now you have to reevaluate everything right you start wandering down that path and that path takes you now to reevaluate everything you believe Is jesus real is he even real is hell real is heaven real is there such thing as salvation? Is there any of this that i've ever believed real? He says further and moving forward i've stopped attending church So that's the next step along the wandering path, right? you just dis- you disconnect yourself from the truth You uncork all your belief system and now you disconnect yourself from the body of christ and you see the trajectory It just gets wider and it gets wider He gives us an interesting insight later in the letter. He says this a precursor to my religious views changing precursor Maybe this is the point of initial deviation for him The precursor to my religious views changing was a seismic shift in my political views My evolving views on women, abortion, homosexuality, war, socialism, social justice, and the environment have led me to the progressive liberal viewpoint. Fascinating, isn't it? That maybe his initial point of deviation was a political belief system. That... Pulled him off because he began to adopt in his mind a political viewpoint of the world and a political worldview that he knew Did not square with what he had understood to be the truth So what do you do when you ha- when you have that dilemma in your life? Well, you 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 what you should do is reevaluate your politics and realize that you've deviated and you're off course But not bruce bruce says no my politics i'm sure of it must be this here. That's flawed And so he wanders from the truth And he ends up writing a letter like this to his family and to his friends and to the people he used to preach to. He concludes the letter by saying, here's what I don't want from you. Attempts to show me the error of my way. Fact is, I've studied the Bible and read far more books than you. What do you really think you're going to show me that will be so powerful and unknown that it will cause me to return to the religion and politics of my past? I don't want constant reminders that you're praying for me Please don't think of me as unkind, but I don't care that you're praying for me. I find no comfort solace or strength in your prayers Please don't send me books tracts, or magazines. You're wasting your time and money Don't give me invitations to attend your church. The answer is no Don't give me threats about judgment and hell I don't believe in either so your threats have no impact on me And don't give me phone calls I don't like talking on the phone That letter breaks my heart It breaks my heart But it also Is a sobering reminder Of what I said at the very beginning of this message But there are none of us who are immune to this If a pastor of 25 years can wander And end up there The reality is Any of us can Well, what do you do when it happens? He concludes this by saying, someone brings them back. Let him know that whoever brings a sinner back from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. What is our responsibility to those who wander? Our responsibility to those who wander is to pursue them. To pursue them. It's to go after them. It's to to make an attempt to bring them back. That word, bring them back, is, a, is another word that, that captures the whole essence of repentance. To, to lovingly, graciously pursue them and draw them back to repentance. To, to, to plead with them that they're off course and that they need to make a course correction and get back on. Or it's going to take them places they'd never dreamed they'd go. And who's responsible for doing that? He says, whoever brings back a sinner. And if someone brings them back, who's responsible? Someone and Whoever. Who's responsible for bringing back the wandering sinner? Someone who sees it. Whoever realizes it. That's, it's not just a job for the elders. It's not just a job for those in spiritual authority at some point. It's whoever. It's someone. If anybody sees it in the body of Christ, that's what James is saying to the body. If any of you see it, someone of you, any one of you, sees your brother, or your sister, they wandered off course, go after them and bring them back. Go after them and plead with them to come back. Galatians 6 1 brothers if anyone's caught in a transgression You who are spiritual Should restore him in a spirit of gentleness Go after them lovingly go after them gently but go after them tenaciously calling them to repent and get their course back on course Every time somebody wanders from the faith every time somebody wanders off course from the body of Christ There's somebody in the body Who knows about it and does nothing Sometimes there's a lot of Somebodies who know about it and do nothing Chuck Swindoll said this Under the excuse of patiently waiting On the Lord Christians frequently stand back And patiently watch a brother Or sister sink deeper into sin We say well who am I to Who am I to involve myself in somebody else's business? Who am I to call out somebody else's sin to them? What right do I have to get involved in somebody else's life? Well, the answer is you have every right and you have every responsibility as a brother and sister in Christ. I can tell you this. If I wander off course and you see it, I plead with you. Please lovingly, gently come and pursue me before I end up where Bruce ended up. I hope you would feel the same way about those around you in the body of Christ, that you would want that from them. There's this because we often act and respond sinfully when others pursue us and make it difficult for them. But James here portrays the body of Christ as a loving body that refuses to allow someone to slip through the cracks and wander away. Without somebody or a group of somebody's going after them and pursuing them to come back to the faith Everything's at stake james says because when you when you pursue them and you bring them back you literally save their soul from hell That's pretty drastic, isn't it? The stakes are pretty high if someone goes off course like bruce did and they continue on that course Where does that course lead them it leads them right to hell? That's the only place it goes and if somebody doesn't pursue them and woo them back to Christ, that's where they'll end up. That's where they'll end up. By asking the question, are you wandering? And are you willing to pursue those who do? I close with this illustration. Dr. Howard Hendricks, who, a long professor at Dallas Seminary, told the story of a young man who... Had for a season of his life strayed far from the lord and was finally brought back into the body of christ into the church Into the lord by the help of a friend who had just loved him unconditionally through the whole process But when dr. Hendricks asked this young man, how did you feel when you were wandering? Here's what he said He said it seemed like I was being pulled farther and farther out to sea into deep water And all my friends were standing on the shoreline, hurling accusations at me about justice, condemnation, and sin. But there was one Christian brother who actually swam out to get me, and he wouldn't let me go. I fought him, but he withstood my fighting. He grasped me, put a life jacket around me, and he managed to pull me to the shore. By the grace of God, he was the single reason I was restored. The man... Refused to let me go What a testimony right Praise god for that dear man in his life Who unlike the others in his life stood on the shoreline and and hurled insults at him This man jumped in the water and went after him and refused to let him go he put up with the fighting He patiently endured the kickback But he just refused to let this brother go. And the Lord used that as a part of bringing him back to faith. As we do that, we have to do it with patience and with love and grace. And we remember, except for the grace of God, that would be me. That would be me. But when Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, died on the cross, He died to cover over a multitude of sins. In fact, He shed His blood to cover all of our sins and all of our wanderings from the faith. The blood of Christ and the forgiveness that flows from the cross is sufficient to cover every sin and every wandering, no matter how deep and how wide and how far we run on the wrong trajectory. There's sufficiency in Christ to cover and forgive. This morning, as we say goodbye for now to James, and we draw this series to a conclusion, I just ask you to consider the question... Am I wandering? Am I off course? Was there a time in my life when my fidelity to the truth and my faithfulness to Christ and my love for Christ and my passion for His Word and my passion for His church and my passion to pursue lost people and my love for His Word and my desire to pray were different than they are right now? Have I, is it possible that at some point I've, I've wandered off course a little bit? And I've now taken a trajectory that's different Taking me further away from him? Do you need to pull out the compass and the map this morning and make a course correction? And then, secondarily, what about those in your life who you see wandering? What are you going to do? As a body of Christ, what are we going to do? Do we just wave goodbye? Say have at it? Hope you get turned around someday. Or are we going to be the kind of folks who jump in the water, swim out to them with a the life vest, refuse to let go until they come back to Christ? I pray that God would help us to be that person in a group of people in a body who loves to be that person. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for James. We're grateful for the journey he has taken us on, for the ways that he's wounded us and for the ways that he's blessed us. And as we wrap this up this morning, help us to look at our own selves in the mirror and ask the question. Have we wandered? Am I far away from where I used to be? And to honestly begin to retrace our steps and try and figure out where we got off course. Help us to repent and turn back. To run back to the path that you set us on, the path toward holiness, toward Christ likeness. The path that leads to life. The path that leads to blessing. The path that leads to wholeness and a life that's lived with the joy and pleasure that comes from You. And Lord, I pray that You'd help us in our own circles of influence. Where is it that we know believers in our life that have wandered and we sat patiently on the side and just watched them go? Put in our minds, Lord, as we reflect on these things. The faces, the names of those we need to reach out to this week. Those that we need to pursue. Those that we need to call back to the truth. Because they've wandered from it. Give us grace and love and patience. And yet a willingness to go. We pray these things for your sake and for your glory. Amen. If you need somebody to with you this morning or you have questions about what you've heard i'm in the back of the room as are others we'd be happy to pray with you talk with you answer your questions as sing this last song why don't you stand and